the copyright system has such a broad range of protection that you know we get everything from the Batmobile as a character to you know chicken sandwiches and yoga in the same year. I'm Daniel Dennis-Jones, and today on Radio Berkman, we're going to look at how copyright and creativity can get along. And we're going to start with one example you're probably familiar with. The Star Wars story is, I think, one of the most remarkable stories. George Lucas built a whole new industry. But, you know, what funds that company is, you know, their ways of using copyright. As you may already know, the Star Wars franchise makes a ton of money off merchandising. According to Forbes, the money Star Wars brings in just on merchandise, Pez dispensers, Halloween costumes, Jabba the Hutt oven mitts, represents over a third of the value of the entire revenue for the franchise. And for that reason, licensing rights to create Star Wars tie-ins was an integral part to the Lucasfilm business model. And that enabled them to hire great artists great filmmakers. That's Peter S. Menel, devoted science fiction fan and a professor at the UC Berkeley School of Law, who studies copyright and intellectual property law. In some ways, I think that's a great success story for copyright. In the 1990s, when the technology came around that made it possible for everyone to create and share intellectual property broadly and instantaneously, a lot of folks in the film and music industry were worried that they were going to lose money to piracy and unlicensed versions of their work. All the people who loved Star Wars wanted to celebrate Star Wars. And so what you had were all these fan sites and all of these other ways in which Star Wars were you know, emerging. And the, the lawyers within Star Wars who are trying to police and, you know, maintain these markets are worried that their copyrighted works are going to get lost into this Internet. But unlike a lot of Hollywood at the time, Lucasfilm learned to embrace the Internet. And they developed some really good norms. Essentially, they said, we're not going to go after fans, but if people start selling T-shirts and other merchandise, we will. And that's that's kind of how they developed it. You won't find a lot of lawsuits in which Star Wars, you know, Lucasfilm is going after fans. Uh, and in fact, they created contests for mashups. But I think it was a pretty important step because other Hollywood studios were unwilling to acknowledge that any of this could be legal. In the early 2000s, this all played out in an interesting case. They had this dispute involving one of their most important merchandise areas, the the Stormtrooper costumery. The guy who originally manufactured these costumes for the movies was trying to sell them. That shows, I think, kind of the balance that they were trying to find, and they they weren't happy about that. To be clear, this guy wasn't the artist who created the whole Stormtrooper look. That was actually a painter. But he was the person who figured out how to make them real. You know, it produced this big litigation because that's what Lucasfilm cares about. They like to be able to license those rights out to different vendors. They want to control that. And so he was shipping these things here. They got a default judgment and then went to enforce the U.S. rights in England, but also to sue under English law. Uh, The English law was more complicated. There they have an industrial design statute with only 25 years duration. And Ainsworth won that issue. That's really interesting. Yeah. No, in fact, you could go to England right now. You could buy an Ainsworth Stormtrooper costume, totally legally. And it would be a really interesting question under uh, the Kurtzang case, whether you'd be able to bring it into the United States 
But, you know, these are the kinds of issues that having, you know, different copyright regimes creates. Uh, it was an interpretation of the English Industrial Design Statute, uh, and I think that's still the law there. Tell me about the Batmobile case. I think it's a case that clearly had a valid basis, and if someone were to create a derivative work whereby they built a Batmobile based on the two-dimensional work, that could be an infringement. The DC Comics folks had licensed the work to the television production series and later to the 1989 film uh, and didn't clarify who owned the copyright in the actual sculptural works. They tried to broaden their lawsuit to say that the Batmobile itself is a character, even though I do think there was potential for infringement to go all the way to calling it a character was distorting, I think, some copyright principles. That's an important distinction I don't think a, a lot of people get is that there there is a whole basket of intellectual property rules that can be invoked in these cases. Is the sculptural right, is that part of copyright as well? Yeah, that's part of copyright. Copyright is very broad. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that I think characterizes the intellectual property field is that 30 years ago, uh, it was taught in these separate buckets. You take a patent course or a trademark course or a copyright course. But with the development of a lot of modern technology like software, all of those things come into play. Mm. And so one of the major insights that I had in, in my career was just to realize that teaching an integrated class would be very important for the next generation of lawyers. I mean, from a from a layperson's perspective, uh, it, it feels like you could look at any case, any case of a creative work, and say that it's a violation of some sort of other person's right. In the in that way, we we talk about like nothing's really original, nothing's new under the sun. There's always like an influence there. Is that in the weeds as a as a legal expert? Does it does it feel that way? Is there always like a a tension in between creativity and creative influences? Well, I would say it's. Not as much as from a legal standpoint, you know, legal system is providing conclusions. It's really from kind of a, a a psychological and economic standpoint. And my background is as a social scientist. Certainly, the way in which our brains process information is so much based on you know the influences around us. I mean, even Albert Einstein, you know, when he was a patent examiner uh, and developing. Uh, his early theories, he was actually working in an art group in the Swiss patent office relating to synchronization. Hmm. And so when you think about how theories of relativity sort of build, you know, they're, they're obviously inspired by prior uh, technology and prior laws of physics, and especially in our highly plastic world in which everything can be digitized and and manipulated, that that's really how our brains and how our lives work. And, and that's why I think that there's a real subtlety in trying to get a right balance here, that, that we, we want to thank George Lucas, we want to make sure that future George Lucases can, can function, but we also need to leave room for all of those teenagers who aspire to be. And coming back to you know Lucasfilm, I think that was one of the areas in which they really led. They they were able to see that they wanted Star Wars and Indiana Jones to proliferate in the fan world, but 
you know, they were able to kind of focus their attention on selling T-shirts and the kind of things that would keep their business uh, prosperous so that they could hire the next generation of, of storytellers. George Lucas, it sounds like, and Lucasfilm instituted a policy within their circle that respected the fans' uh, participation in the universe. Did you, is there any evidence that the policies that they put into place as a company, as their own little universe, influenced other creators or possibly even in, has influenced legal structures? Well, it definitely has influenced the industry as well as, I think, the functioning of the law. So with regard to the industry, you know, they, they were really outside of what was a fairly narrow range of, of thinking about these issues. And if you look at Hollywood today, I think that most of the companies have very much liberalized their approaches about what they take down, how they take it down. They have the opportunity under YouTube to monetize and to do various other things. And they also see the benefit of, of social marketing. So, you know, they want people to be out there tweeting and, and publicizing their releases. A lot of what we're talking about seems to be this kind of hopscotch of, of, a, of an industry being disrupted and then um, a, a legal process being invoked and then um, the industry kind of catching up to the disruption. And I wonder if, um, it, from what I'm hearing, it sounds like the law kind of just isn't quite well designed for um, the 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 way we kind of perceive creativity today. And I wonder... So let me put this into a very clear perspective. Okay, This is not something that many people are that aware of. But when radio emerged, that was a really big shift, a really big shock to the ecosystem. I mean, this idea that you could buy a box and listen to music, and how were we going to compensate those people? And it took impact litigation, Supreme Court decisions... And it took literally decades before we had the blanket license system that many of us, I'm saying older, you know, middle-aged people grew up with and that everyone takes for granted. But one of the things that most people don't realize is that a lot of popular sound recordings and musical compositions were not available on radio during a lot of that transition period, a period that lasted several decades. Now, there was a time in the early 1940s when there was absolutely no copyrighted sound uh, musical compositions on radio because they had reached an impasse. And then we get, and eventually we got to what, you know, by the mid to late 1950s was seen as a pretty stable ecosystem, which is radio stations can play pretty much everything they want. And, you know, a percentage, say 5% of their gross revenues is going to go into a pool that's going to get distributed to the musical composition owners. This idea that legal institutions can just immediately adapt is, I would say, you know, that's a pipe dream. But if the end, you know, if, if the solution is that there's no copyright, I do think that we're selling copyright short because I do think there is a tremendous value to using market institutions to support artists of all type. But the problem is that the how value gets distributed uh, is is very complicated. If we can get the pricing at a sensible level and make sure it gets back to the people who create, I think that's a very nice society. I want to live in that society. I want George Lucas to profit. I want the next George Lucas to profit. And I want the next mashup artist to profit. And I want the people whose work they use to profit. But to do it in a way that's very seamless, sensible, 
That's the goal. That is such a perfect place to end. I want to thank you so much for coming in here to talk about this with me. Great. Thank you. Peter S. Menel is a professor at the UC Berkeley School of Law who studies copyright and intellectual property. You can find out more about him and his work, including a talk he recently gave at the Berkman Center, on our website at cyber.law.harvard.edu. This week's episode of Radio Berkman was produced by me, Daniel Dennis-Jones, and Elizabeth Gillis from the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. 